0: Hi everybody welcome to episode number 17 of the jackson hole connection i am stephan abrams your host since the beginning of this podcast i've had the honor to sit down and visit with so many wonderful people the stories they have shared have been remarkable and the information i've learned has helped me grow as a person i hope you have had the same experience each week i learn of more interesting people i should speak with who have great stories to tell with the connection to jackson Hole. Keep the feedback coming. You may always reach me at connect at the Jackson Hole connection.com. My guest today on the Jackson Hole Connection is Judy Singleton. Judy started visiting Jackson Hole as a child on family road trips in the 1950s. Judy came and went from Jackson Hole but was always drawn back by our beautiful valley. Today we will learn from Judy if you have a deep passion for something you can always learn how to do just about anything. Judy will also teach us about trust, asking the right questions, and the importance of relationships. Having Judy as a guest was a humbling educational experience. Please enjoy what we hear from Judy today. But before we begin, I have a quick word from one of our sponsors. Jackson Hole Marketplace, the small market in Jackson Hole with a huge reach. Stop in for hot coffee and homemade breakfast in the morning, awesome lunches in the afternoon, and finish the day with a soft serve ice cream and a six pack of beer. Need catering for breakfast or lunch? They can do it. And deliver for free. Want to know more? Visit jhmarketplace.com. Judy, thank you for being here at the Jackson Hole Connection. It is exciting and thrilling and, and pleasure to have you here today.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Indeed. Well, on this snowy day, let's get into how did you land here in Jackson Hole?
1: Well, when I was a child, we used to always go to visit our relatives and take road trips. And I grew up in Los Angeles and my parents' family were all in Iowa. So we did lots of national park visits as kids. So we would drive back, visit all the relatives, and always come back through Yellowstone on our way home. So we started coming here in the 50s. Then we had a neighbor who lived next door to us who was in the Film and TV business who did a television show called The Monroes. And that was probably in the early 60s. And so we came up here several summers and watched them film the TV show. So the
0: Monroes. The Monroes.
1: It was about a family that moved out here from the Dust Bowl in Kansas in a covered wagon. And when they crossed the Snake River, the parents drowned. And it was about five children that raised themselves here in Jackson. No kidding. And Barbara Hershey was the star of the show. They had two great Pyrenees dogs, and everybody stayed at the Virginian Motel. Okay. And this was a time when the Virginian Motel was absolutely the edge of town. There was (laughs) nothing past it.
0: Well, being raised in L.A., I was born in L.A., and that's not Lower Alabama. That is Los Angeles. Los (laughs) Angeles. Yes. My parents moved to Los Angeles in the late 60s, early 70s, after they were married, and my brother and I were both born there
1: whereabouts?
0: Um, Tarzana County Hospital is where we were both born.
1: Well, I grew up in Northridge right And near the earthquake.
0: I know where none of that is because I was about nine months old when we moved from Los Angeles to Brookhaven, Mississippi, the metropolis of Mississippi. <laughs> yes.
1: That's incredible.
0: So you started coming out here as a child and What brought you back here as an adult?
1: Well, my sister, when she was going to the University of California in Santa Barbara, took a summer job working for the Yellowstone Park Company. And she was a waitress at Canyon for four summers. And she met her husband of now 45 years there. They married. They had three children and been very happy. And she encouraged me when I was a freshman in college to do the same thing. So I wrote to the park company and I filled out an application and they hired me. As a waitress to um, serve tables at the Snow Lodge, which at that time, this was 1971, it was a double-wide trailer.
0: No kidding.
1: And we stayed in kind of, they were like dorm rooms that had kind of rickety old bunk beds upstairs, and we had one common bath for all the employees down the hall. It was like being at summer camp, and it was so much fun.
0: And I've heard a love story like that with your sister But I've heard so many other love stories where people have come out to work in Grand Teton or Yellowstone National Park, and they met their mate, the person they fell in love with. I mean,
1: you make the dearest, longest-term friends from a situation like this because you're far removed from everything in your normal life. You're making terrible wages. The food is terrible. But the fun factor or the fun quotient is so huge. And your sense of adventure. You do things that you would never do at home.
0: So, do you recall some fun stories of things that you experienced during that time when you were out here then?
1: Oh, yeah. We had a pie fight in the restaurant one morning before we <laughs> opened at about 5 a.m. And we went in there, and there were all these cream pies. And somebody got a wild hair and threw one of them. And before you knew it, the whole kitchen had been trashed. <laughs> and we had to have the whole thing cleaned up in our time to open for breakfast at 7 a.m. And there were a lot of parties, a lot of, you know, fun that was had after work. We worked long hours, but then we would drive up to the hot pots and go swimming at midnight. And we would take big coolers from from the kitchens and we'd fill them up with like crazy, you know, crazy kinds of alcohol that we'd go to the Hamilton stores and buy <laughs> and make Harvey Wallbangers. And we'd make like five gallons of them. There'd be 40 or 50 people would show up at these campsites. And we'd just have these amazing parties or we'd drive over to the lake and we'd charter a boat and take it out for the evening. I mean, people back then, we hitchhiked everywhere because nobody had cars. So when you flew in here, if you came to West Yellowstone and the park bus would pick you up, take you up to Gardner and get you processed, then they would turn around and drive you back and drop you off at your dormitory. And here you were where you knew no one. You'd have your trunk that you'd bring all your clothes in for the summer mm-hmm. and you were going to be there for two and a half, three months and you know, we all signed contracts saying how long we would stay before we had to be back at school. And then on our days off, we would just adventure. We would go out on the street and just stick our thumb out and hitchhike everywhere in the park.
0: And it was safe to th- stick your thumb it out. It was
1: safe. I That's mean, nobody nobody got hurt. There was no problems. It was one day we even took our backpacks and we hitchhiked over to West Yellowstone. Frontier Airlines was running a special for 10 bucks. see the deer and the antelope play. You could take a Conair... Airplane, which is what they were flying, from West Yellowstone to Jackson for 10 bucks round trip.
0: No kidding. So we'd
1: fly over here. Then we'd hitchhike out to the Grovant campground, set up our camp, and then spend the weekend there.
0: That's spectacular. It really
1: was. And they flew very low over the mountains so you could really see everything. And the flight attendants at that time all had these hilarious uniforms that were like big pinafores with ruffles on them. (laughs) And these were propeller airplanes. I mean, it was... It was really funny. And, and the airport was like a little house on the runway. Uh-huh. There, there was not much there at that time.
0: That's spectacular. It's a little different now.
1: A little different now. But the mountains are still there. That part hasn't <laughs> changed at all.
0: <laughs> we still have the mountains. What an adventure to 1971 to say, I'm following my what my sister said to do. And I'm going to go work in Yellowstone National Park. You can hitchhike and thumb around the park or the region to go visit other things, do you stay in touch with some of the people that you met?
1: I do. My roommate um, went to the University of Washington. I was in her wedding. She has three children, and she lives on Vashon Island, and I saw her this summer when I was up there at my niece's wedding. Oh,
0: spectacular. Yeah. Those are great relationships to have. Great
1: relationships. Just wonderful, wonderful friends. You know, and everybody trusted one another. So I had a boss um, who was the manager of the Snow Lodge, and he had a motorcycle. So a lot of times, if we ended up with the same day off, we'd go off on his motorcycle and go on some adventure. I remember we took his motorcycle and came down to Grand Teton and went to the village and we rode the tram and he brought a box lunch. And I was a child who grew up and hated vegetables, just hated (laughs) vegetables. And he put a tomato in my lunchbox instead of an apple. He said, you're going to learn how to eat a tomato and it's going to taste good. And we got to the top of the tram and I ate that tomato and I was so hungry And I was thirsty, and I've never tasted anything that tasted better. So that was kind of memorable.
0: I'm impressed that a tomato from Yellowstone tasted good. It was juicy. (laughs) Because we don't get great tomatoes out here nowadays.
1: But back then, I don't think anybody knew the difference between a good tomato and a bad tomato.
0: That's true. We weren't
1: weren't as fussy about our food.
0: My in-laws raise tomatoes in San Jose in California, and I look forward to every year when they come out here and bring a flat of tomatoes to us. Those are the best tomatoes. Next year, we're going to walk some tomatoes down over to you.
1: That would be great. You will
0: love those tomatoes.
1: Well, and my sister who married the gentleman that she met at Canyon, she lives in Modesto. So she also lives in the Central Valley in California. Oh,
0: she gets vegetables. She gets vegetables. Yeah. So, so what's your vegetable status now?
1: I eat tons of vegetables. Good.
0: Okay. I've, Good.
1: I've changed my way.
0: <laughs> Good. So fast forward to where we are today, college, you moved out here, when to live full-time?
1: 1984.
0: Okay, and what was your first job out here?
1: I was a server at the Alpenhof and Dietrich Oberright was my first boss. Okay, and i had been a flight attendant for 8 years previous to that so i had some food and wine experience mm-hmm. and he said i'm really going to take a chance on you because you've never been a waitress so he took a chance on me and i worked at the alpenhof for 3 years and the first summer i was there i got employee of the summer so i was very proud of my food and wine skills jeff decker was the food and beverage manager then and he took a lot of time training us on food you know food and wine pairings and Learning all the ingredients of you know in fine dining because this was when this was the Alpen Rose, which is the dining room downstairs, and we wore our little Heidi costumes with our knee socks and our loafers, and it was a lot of fun. But I also had a nut and candy shop that I had built um, in 1984. It was the first new business that had gone in in the village in ten years.
0: No kidding.
1: Yes, I moved here from Biloxi, Mississippi.
0: I moved here from Biloxi, Mississippi as well. You did. I did. I like. <laughs> Keep talking about the nut and candy shop.
1: Yeah. So I, um, when I was a flight attendant with Continental Airlines, they declared bankruptcy and I decided instead of going back to work for Continental, I would open a nut and candy store in Mobile, Alabama called the Peanut Shack. So I was married to a a DC-10 captain at the time. So he was, he continued to fly and I opened this candy store that was a mad success. And the first year we were in business, I got franchisee of the year out of 300 stores. And I just, I really didn't know anything about it, but I thought if I put my heart and soul into it, I can learn how to do the books, I can learn how to order, I can learn how to hire, I can learn how to train. And I went to the costume store and I rented a Mr. Peanut costume once a month, (laughs) and I wandered around the mall because our shop was in a food court, Mm -hmm. you know, how the malls have food courts. And I would wander around and pass out samples, and I mean, the business was over the moon. It was hilarious. We had hand-dipped chocolates and fresh roasted nuts, and so when... My marriage fell apart. I thought, I could go to Jackson and I could open a nut shop. Mm-hmm. So I moved up here and I met with the um, architectural committee from the village. Okay. And I brought a huge duffel bag full of all the samples of all the different things I wanted to serve in the nut shop in little Ziploc bags. And I threw them on the table. And I had Danny Williams was the architect. And I had him do some preliminary drawings for this meeting. And I wanted to build kind of a kiosk type of building. I would have a fryer in it, and then I told him I wanted a fire suppression system in the building so it would blow the smell of the nuts all over the base of the mountain. Good idea. Yeah, and they went for it. So I packed up and moved up here. Um, this was probably in January when they <laughs> gave us the approval, and Casey Matioski built the building, Okay. and Danny or, was the architect, and we built that thing all winter long, and I'd fly up here every other week and help Casey paint and hang windows and get the building ready and we towed it in on a truck and dropped it on the site in front of the music festival hall. Spectacular. Yeah and the building was it was a tiny little building that was like 12 by 14 Mm -hmm. and it had glass panels below so you could walk by and there were two rows of tin pans that had hot roasted fresh nuts that you could see they were all lit up and you just walk by and say I'd like a quarter pound of this or half a pound of that put it in a Ziploc bag, put it in your pocket, and just take off. So you could ski by and not have to take your skis off.
0: That's awesome.
1: Yeah, so we called it the nut in the hole. <laughs> and it was it was a wonderful way to meet people. And we had the building. I was living with Scott Singleton at the time. We got married a few years later. And he and I ran this nut shop. So I would work there in the daytime. Then I would run over to the Alpenhof at 5 o'clock and put on my Heidi costume and wait tables from 6 until midnight or however late people stayed and then he would come in in the summertime and run the shop in the evening during the music festival.
0: Oh yes. So he was
1: open before the music festival and during intermission and we could make more money in an hour or the 20 minutes of intermission Mm -hmm. than sometimes I would make all day.
0: That was a captive audience. It was a
1: captive audience and they were hungry, they were thirsty. We brought in soda pop and you know, people had nuts and something to drink and it, it was a so big was, success. Was
0: that the precursor to the snack shed at the Grand Teton Music Festival? Yes. Is that what started it?
1: I think that's they decided to have something at intermission was a good idea. Okay. So we did the building and we did the business with a handshake <laughs> from Paul McCollister. We didn't have a lease, we didn't have a contract. And after three years, Paul came to me and he said, we can't do this anymore. He said, you've ruined my business at Nick Wilson's Cafe. <laughs> he said, people aren't going in there for lunch. They're stopping here because they don't have to stop. Mm-hmm. So he kind of took away my right to do business, and he bought the building from me. And they moved the building up to the Thunder chairlift, or the, yeah, the Thunder chairlift, and they opened a, a sandwich shop up there. But the ski area then owned it.
0: Is that the same shack that's still up at the still Thunder? there.
1: That is your shack. It's my shack. Is it really? Yeah, my snack shack.
0: (laughs) I love it.
1: Yeah.
0: I love it. And so now you have a financial planning office. You're a financial planner. And you're with Raymond James. I am. And when did you open that office?
1: 1994. So we're just starting our 25th year in business. Congratulations. Yeah. It's been a wonderful opportunity. And um, Dick Scarlett gave me the opportunity to opened this office at the Jackson State Bank. When I stopped waitressing and stopped the nut shop, I went into interior design. For eight years, I was at Mountain House, and I worked for Porky Walker and David Carpenter. Mm -hmm. And they had a small little furniture store that turned into a gigantic department store. I mean, we were about 2,000 square feet that grew into 22,000 square feet. Wow. And I ended up being the buyer, and I would go to market with them, and we would Fill up the department store, and this is right about 1987 when the housing boom started, when the real estate market really turned around. And the first three years I was here, the real estate market had been dead. Then mm-hmm. all of a sudden, Delta Airlines started having some nonstop flights from New York City to Salt Lake, so people could actually get here in one day. They didn't have to spend the night somewhere. And at that point in time, it seemed like the real estate market started to turn around because all of the people who used to come here and stay at dude ranches in the summer, They loved it here, and they wanted to have a second home here. It would always take them two days to get here. But once they could get here in one day, all of a sudden, it kind of made more sense. So at this time, Scott and I had gotten married, and he was in the real estate business. So he was selling houses, and I was filling houses with furniture.
0: It's a good good.
1: good partnership there. It was a really good partnership, Mm -hmm. yeah. And this store turned into something, Corky's original thought process. He was kind of a Dale Carnegie salesperson. And his whole thing was stack them deep and sell them cheap. Mm-hmm. So he would buy 29, 399 sleeper sofas, and every condo in the village had the same sleeper sofa. And every <laughs> condo had the same nightstands and dressers and dinette sets. And so I encouraged him to I said, "There's another crowd that's moving to town. There's more money coming to town, and people want something different. So I helped him to elevate what he had in the store. We went from having 399 sleeper sofas to having $20,000 sofas. I said, it takes the same amount of effort to sell this. People are buying them, and you don't have to have as much inventory. So the business model really changed. Was, what a great vision. It was wonderful. And, and Corky, Corky and his wife, Edie, at the time had a great vision also. I mean, Edie opened a linen shop within the store, so we had nice European linens for the beds, and we had a gourmet shop, and we had wonderful pots and pans and all kinds of wares. So we could furnish a house from soup to nuts, mm-hmm. and it was great. And I met lots and lots and lots of people. So when I started this whole venture with Raymond James, I had a very nice foothold of people that I knew. Yes. Because I started this business knowing less than nothing about the world of finance. Dick Scarlett gave me this opportunity, and I said, we have to select a firm that has a good training program. I said, because I know less than nothing. I don't ever, I'm never embarrassed to say that because that's where we started. So Raymond James had a six-week training program that I attended at our home office in St. Petersburg, Florida. And I left Mountain House and went over to Dick's office, and he handed me two two two-inch-thick books and said, well, these are the books that you're going to have to study to pass the Series 7 exam. And not knowing even the right questions to ask, I said, okay. And I gave myself three weeks to learn this stuff. What? And (laughs) it was an amazing story because... I went down to Salt Lake because he did a lot of things with First Security in Salt Lake. And he said, why don't you go down and visit with them and ask them how they train their advisors. So I drove down there and they told me that they used a company that did some videotapes. So it wasn't just the books. And I I am a better visual learner or audio learner than I am just by reading. So I I bought all of the tapes. There were 24 four-hour tapes and all these workbooks. And my dear friend, Jean Marr, came to my house and she said, pack a bag, I'm taking you to my ranch down on the Sweetwater River because all of your friends will be knocking on your door, wanting to bring you a snack or telling you you need to take a study break and you don't have time. So she kidnapped me, took me to her ranch. We had a little television set that had a VCR player in it because there was no TV down there. And we sat there for two and a half weeks and did these workbooks. And she sat there with me. She cooked while I studied. Wow. And I got on an airplane, and I flew to Minneapolis, and I did a five-day kind of crash course on the books. And I took the exam, and I got a 69, and I didn't pass. And I called Dick, and I said, this is never going to work. He said, you got a 69 after three weeks? He said, I think that's fantastic. (laughs) He said, don't be disappointed. He called Raymond James, told him about my background, said she got a 69. Could she still come to the training class? They said, send her down. She can take the exam when she gets done. Uh Uh-huh. So I flew home on a Saturday, packed my bags, flew out on a Sunday morning, and I went to St. Petersburg. And this is, this is kind of before internet. This is before Google and being able to look things up. And I went down to St. Petersburg, Florida, not having any idea what Raymond James was all about, thinking it was going to be like a little strip shopping center with a classroom. And I got off the airplane and drove across the causeway from Tampa to St. Petersburg, and there were four huge big glass buildings. It was a campus. I mean, it was a big deal and I was just kind of overwhelmed and I did the training class and I was the only female in the training class. I was the only 40 year old in the class. Everybody else was 25 and they were all guys that had just gotten out of business school and they were smart little whippersnappers and I felt out of place and I ended up being like the dorm mother because we all lived in a hotel and we did things after work and we'd get together and have study groups and I was kind of like everybody's mom. So it was a lot of fun, and 25 years later, if we fast forward, there are two people surviving from our class of 26, and one of them is the president of Raymond James, and the other one is me.
0: No kidding. Everybody
1: else either left or went to a different firm or changed careers. or.
0: So you were in the freshman class of Raymond James with the current president yes. of Raymond James. Yes, yes. Tosh Ellen, he was
1: my classmate, and he's a wonderful guy. And at the time, he was at an office in Atlanta after we finished this class. And he was there, and then they recruited him, and he moved down to St. Petersburg and became our president. And he's doing a fantastic job.
0: You make a lot of what you have talked about here as seamless and almost easy. You are amazing to have the desire and the wherewithal to say, I don't know anything about finance, but I'm going to become a financial planner because somebody has faith in me to do that. He said, I don't know where Jackson Hole is other than visiting there for a little bit. I'm going to go there and start a business. What was your drive and desire to, to do all this, Judy? You
1: know, it was funny because when I was, the eight years that I was a flight attendant, I never traveled overseas. I used all my free airplane tickets to come back here. There was something about this place that made me happy. Uh-oh. every time that plane would land I was just I was at home there was something about this place that it has a draw it's almost like a vortex like when people talk about Sedona and all the vortexes I really there's an energy here that just people come here because they want to be here not because it's easy not because a job gave them a transfer and said we're going to move you to Jackson Hole so you have to come here with a passion and a desire and a I'd say hunger in the belly, that mm-hmm. I'm going to make it work and I will do anything, you know, and you have to be willing to do anything. And while I was waiting tables and had the nut shop, I also bought six rent sex cars and started a little rental car company.
0: No kidding. And I was
1: renting the cars out of the nut shop and parking them in the parking lot at the ski resort. And every night I'd have to go down and shuffle them all around so they wouldn't get tickets. <laughs> you know, and, and I taught aerobics on my day off. You do what you have to do to survive. And you have to be willing to do just about anything. Mm-hmm. But then I found out by doing that, opportunities kind of come up because I was waiting tables and I saw them in the paper for Mountain House where they were hiring a salesperson. I thought, I don't know anything about furniture. I don't know anything about interior design. But when I lived in Biloxi, uh, my first husband and I had built a house from architectural antiques and it was gorgeous and it was on the garden tour down there. I thought, I can figure this out. I know what I like and if I just translate that into something that You know, and if you're passionate about it, you can learn about it. So you kind of learn that business. And then when I went into the finance business, I thought, what would make me do that? Well, I was, I've been married twice and was financially unsuccessful twice. I filed bankruptcy after my first marriage. And the second time I pretty much lost everything again. And I thought, I know how to make money. I need to figure out how to keep it. So that's why this was so intriguing to me. Because I thought if I could share with other women or other people how to better manage your resources, because I was making a very good living, but I just kind of kept giving it away. I thought this could be a really good fit for me. So maybe there's a message I have to share with other people. And the other part is it's communication skills. You have a story to tell. Everybody said, how can you go from being interior designer to financial planner? I said, it's a very similar business. Somebody comes into your office, they want to build a house. What are you going to use it for? Who's going to come and visit? How often are the grandkids going to be here? Do we need to have it ch- child-proof? Do we need to have, you know, everybody use this thing, and it's all about asking the right questions. Of, And it's the same thing in finance. What do we want to achieve? How long do we have to do it? Tell me what your goals are. And it's, it's kind of getting people to tell you what it is they're looking for and getting them, it's all about trust, whether you furnish their house, whether you run their portfolio, You know, and any hope without a plan is only a dream. So how do we make those dreams come true? We make a plan. And it was learning everything from the bottom up, you know, and you learn one client at a time, one investment vehicle at a time, and it took a good 10 years before I felt the least bit comfortable. And I will tell you, I've never been this afraid in my life. I would just go home every night and just go, what am I doing, you know, But I thought if I just keep showing up every day, every day you go in and you learn something new. And you learn how to hire people. You learn how to get the right people on the bus. And you learn how to get the wrong people off the bus. And then getting everybody in the right seat. And we've gone from being a firm of me singular to two people, to three people, to five people. Then we grew it to seven people. Then I realized that more wasn't necessarily more. And then we trimmed back. And now we only have five people in the office and we've got the dream team. Everybody works for the greater good. Everybody knows every client's story and what they need and what's important to them. We want to know where everybody's kids go to summer camp. We want to know who's going off to college and we want to stay in touch with those kids. And it's getting to know the family. And it's all about a relationship. I think the other magical thing was when Dick had this vision to open this financial services office in a bank, that had never been done here before. And when we joined Raymond James... I was one of 35 offices around the country that was with Raymond James in a bank providing this kind of service. Now we have over 900 offices. So I I feel very blessed in the sense my timing was great. I got to grow up with Raymond James. So when I started with Raymond James, we were a pretty small firm. And when I would go to the home office, I'd stay at my boss's house. I didn't stay in a hotel. So you get to know all the inner workings of how the firm works and they have been very good to me. So I kind of feel like they're my family. And they've been a tremendous resource. You know, I am basically their client, so they want to take good care of me so that we can take good care of our clients.
0: So many wonderful nuggets about uh, life and growing and how to overcome any obstacle you have experienced so much. Thank you for sharing all that, Judy.
1: You're welcome. I think you have to not be afraid to take a risk. Yes. You know, jump off the high dive and... Hold your breath.
0: You didn't know. You did not have the training, like you said, to be an interior designer, to sell furniture. But you did it. You said, I, I can learn that. And yeah. to be right. the financial planner every day, learn
1: something new. Yeah. And we work with over 800 families in the Valley now. All right. And, you know, it's it's been a wonderful adventure. And and also, you know, when the, when the bank was sold to Wells Fargo and I chose to go independent to start my own firm and... You know, I kind of did what Dick did when he left Cherry Creek Bank, and he wanted to come here and have his own bank. And I had the luxury of being able to do that. And it's been wonderful. And I I can't say it's been easy, but every time you have a success, I think the success means a lot more.
0: Yes, it does. There's a
1: lot of value there.
0: And there's a lot of hard work Mm -hmm. and effort and sacrifices that goes into success. And you can still invest a lot of hard work and time and still fail like you went through bankruptcy twice mm-hmm. and it's not as though that you uh, were not working hard it was just the circumstances you did not have all the right tools to ensure that like you said that you could hold on to your money that exactly. it was not all being given away and uh, now that you have those tools
1: yeah I do have those tools and I think one other thing is kind of timing I think can play into this when I started in this business was 1994 and if you think about the the tech the tech business kind of had a huge zoom up until 2000. Then we had the tech rep. Then when I left and opened Jay Singleton Financial, it was right in the middle of the financial crisis in 2008. That's right. So we started right at the bottom of the barrel. And I told my team, I said, if we can make it through this, we can make it through anything. Mm-hmm. And you show up every day and you have to, you have to say the glass is half full. And you have to have, you know, an idea to share with your clients and you have to be there to hold their hands because, you know, we ate a lot more peanut butter and jelly and a lot less filet mignon during those lean years. But everybody made it through and nobody died from it. It's just, it was a circumstance that we were dealt and you face adversity and you just say, we will, you know, we're going to survive. Yes. And it was a scary time. But, you know, now in the rearview mirror, here we are going through volatility again in the markets and, you know, but we know we can make it through. We just have to have
0: a plan. Don't look at the market as just as one quick snapshot. You have to look at it as a lifespan. It is a lifespan. And when you look at it as that lifespan, you can see the trajectory as far as the importance of at least doing something to save for the future. But investing, not just the money, but you invested in yourself and you invest in those people that work with you. Who are your family and Raymond James investing in you? You said that you started with them and they they were small. But keep in mind, you said that there were four, it was a campus that you went to. Yeah. So it wasn't tiny. I mean, it was small. But now, wow, how many Raymond James? We have over
1: 7,000 employees at the home office. Okay. And then we have, I'm trying to think, uh, probably 9,000 advisors around the country. Of which nine hundred of those are in banks, and then there's also independent contractors like myself, so it's it's grown into a very large firm and and I would say most of that growth took took place after two thousand and eight because we were an extremely fiscally conservative firm by mm-hmm. nature, and we sailed through two thousand and eight and two thousand and nine without any issues of you know liquidity and whatnot, and we garnered a lot of new advisors from other firms that had issues so I feel like we really did make the right choice, and I love the management style of how Raymond James is run, and I have great respect for Tom James, who, you know, he took us through that very, very dark time in our, in our fiscal lives, and he was a tremendous leader for us to take advice from. His whole theme in life is work, work, play. He said you have to work hard and you have to play hard, because if you don't get outside and if all you do is work, it doesn't make you a whole person.
0: So what is one of the favorite things that you do to play? And it doesn't have to be here in the valley.
1: I love to travel. Okay. I love to travel. I love to ski. I love to play golf. You know, And I am now getting to the point in my career where I'm doing some more serious travel. And I'm heading off on a big um, National Geographic expedition in May and with a friend of mine. And we are going to be going to England, Ireland, and Scotland on the uh, explorer ship. So we'll be exploring a lot of historical areas. And I am going back to Africa in... Um, next October, and I'm doing a train trip from Dar es Salaam all the way down to Cape Town. So we'll be going through five countries. We'll do the whole continent. Oh, my. On a train called the Rovos Rail, and it's kind of like stepping back 100 years. It's like Downton Abbey. The train is an Ooh. old British incredible. It's a fantastic experience, and I did one about four years ago, and I'm, I'm going to go back and do it again. <laughs>
0: Take some good pictures, and the I boys, would. Will, they would love to see that, yeah. because they love trains. And I'm a big train oh, fan, too. I'm a huge too. train.
1: We used to ride the train when we were kids, and we'd ride the train back to Iowa before we started driving.
0: I would take the train, when we moved from Mississippi to New Orleans, I'd take the train back to Mississippi to visit my grandparents. And then, also, when being in New Orleans in high school, I would take the train from New Orleans to Tuscaloosa to visit my brother. Oh, sure. And then, also, when I was in college and went to the University of Alabama, I would take the train back and forth instead of my mom or having to catch a ride. The train's a
1: wonderful way to travel. I love the train. The last trip I took was in 2008 during the Trump election. Okay. So, not 2008, excuse me, 2016. And I was on the train when the presidential election happened, and there were only six Americans on the train, and everybody else was from Australia or Europe. Hmm. So, it was an interesting time to be traveling, you know, and it was, the people were fascinating everybody... We made lots of new friends, and I went with my sister. And we're going to do this next trip again, so I really look forward to that.
0: Oh, I love it! Yeah. I well, love last it.
1: summer, I took um, I took a trip to Canada with my two sisters, and we went helicopter hiking in the Bugaboos. And we took this helicopter trip. Where are the
0: Bugaboos? Tell everybody. It is
1: between um, Banff and Lake Louise. Okay. And you fly into Calgary. We spent a couple of days at Lake Louise, and then a bus came and picked us up. Our group of twenty-six people. And drove us to this field, it's in the Pearsol Mountains, and took us to this field. And this huge CMH helicopter came and picked up, took us 12 at a time, and whisked us off to this lodge on top of this mountain. And we unpacked, we had lunch, and within an hour and a half, we were in the helicopter again on our first hike. So every morning, the helicopter would pick us up, take us to some destination, we'd be out for eight or nine hours, come back to the lodge, have a wonderful dinner. It was, it was incredible. I,
0: I love it. Judy, you have inspired me today. I'm sure you have inspired some of the listeners as well. And thank you for sharing all these fantastic stories. And congratulations to all of your success. And I'm so happy that now you are playing and hopefully now more play, work, play, play, play work.
1: There you go. I yes. like that. that. That'll be my, <laughs> my next goal.
0: So if the listeners would like to reach out to you, do you have an email address for your work that people could use to contact you?
1: I do. It's um, judith.singleton at raymondjames.com.
0: Fantastic. This is spectacular. And so people know the liquor store we use, Raymond James, but at the same time, we're neighbors. We live right down the street, and it's always so nice to see you Out in the front yard, when we're walking with the boys, learning how to ride bikes or walking with the dog. And I think that's what's special about this community. And thank you for making the community what it is. Because people like you have made Jackson Hole what it is today. And I really appreciate that for myself and my
1: family. Well, we're happy to do it. And I think the world is all about pay it forward. You know, if you do something for someone else, do it with no expectation. And you never know what's going to come back. And just always, you know, this is an amazing community. We have, people are all here because they want to. It's generous beyond belief. And the nonprofit world that we have, you know, we all get involved in. We all pick our favorite charities. And it's just, it's really an incredible place to live. And I I think I live on the best street in this town. I love it. We have great neighbors. Yes, indeed. Thank you, Stephanie.
0: (laughs) Thank you, Judy. And well said. Pay it forward. Get out there and get involved in an organization that can make your community much better. Whether it's here in Jackson, Atlanta, Georgia, Biloxi, Mississippi, Mobile, Alabama, or Los Angeles, California, get out there and get involved. And Judy, thank you for your wisdom today and look forward to seeing you around.
1: Thank you. It's been a pleasure.
0: Yes, indeed. Is it okay to pair beer with Beef Wellington? Does Merlot go with Red Bull? Not sure how to make the perfect bourbon and Coke? Well, the team at the liquor store of Jackson Hole can answer all of these questions plus more. Stop in at 115 Buffalo Way, Jackson, Wyoming, or visit us at tlsofjh.com to experience service that will knock your socks off. The liquor store has been serving the Jackson Hole Valley for over 35 years. Thank you everyone for tuning in today to the Jackson Hole Connection. I hope you have enjoyed listening and can take away a little nugget about life. I'm always looking for fun guests who have a connection to Jackson Hole. Know of someone who would be great to be on the show? Please send me an email to connect at the thejacksonholeconnection.com. Please subscribe, rate, and review The Jackson Hole Connection on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you receive your podcasts. A special shout out to my friend Luke Taylor for producing and providing the tunes for this podcast. Luke, you help bring it all together. Y'all come back again, you hear?